Welcome to the movies that made me. I am your host, Luke Sorber, and the theme this episode is movies that made me want to change the world. Uh, movies that in some way have influenced us. Perhaps we ran from the cinema and immediately took action, or perhaps it just stirred some thoughts that we are still processing um, all these years later. My father was someone who joined the Italian partisans at the age of 17 to fight the Nazis, and my mother was a feminist who um, got through an open university degree in politics and sociology. And my brother spent his spare time selling an anarchist magazine. So I was probably already cursed, doomed, destined to be someone that wanted to change things, given that family background. But movies also played a role with me. Whether raising consciousness or calling to action, I can remember as a child wanting to change the school system after seeing the blackboard jungle with Glenn Ford, spare the rod with Max Bygraves. Yes, that Max Bygraves. Uh, it was a film against corporal punishment made in the 1950s. And Lindsay Anderson's If, as a teenager uh, who spent many evenings and afternoons at the National Film Theatre, all quiet on the Western Front, uh, Jean Renoir's La Grande Illusion and Kubrick's Paths of Glory may be furious how battles between national ruling classes overwhelmingly sacrifice the working classes. James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause made me want not to repeat the mistakes of my parents and now my children wish to escape from mine. Sergei Eisenstein's Strike, Paul Robeson in Proud Valley and Sally Field in Norma Ray fueled my continuing loyalty to the trade union movement as a progressive force. Well, The Front, also directed by Martin Ritt, and Henry Fonda in Twelve Angry Men convinced me that minority views need to be heard rather than silenced. Ralph Nelson's Soldier Blue opened my eyes to the genocide of Native Americans by European settlers, and also that too many Westerns had been lying to me. Norman Jewison's In the Heat of the Night with the late uh, great Sidney Poitier and Horace Ove's Pressure put racism in the US and UK at the front of one's mind. John Schlesinger's Sunday Bloody Sunday and Midnight Cowboy showed that if one does not have freedom over one's own body, can freedom exist at all? Marlene Gorris's A Question of Silence provided a furious riposte to misogyny. Marco Ferreri took on consumerism in La Grande Abufata. Fassbinder's Fear Eats the Soul foregrounded the plight of the migrant worker. Ken Loach's TV play Cathy Come Home, that of homelessness, and um, Truffaut's Les Quatre Sans Coups of Disaffected Youth. Any movie by Louis Bunuel and Federico Fellini warned us about the vices of the church, as did Victoria de Sica's and Sachat Rai's on the injustice of poverty. Jean-Luc Godard uh, took on capitalism, Lena Wertmüller, fascism, and Silkwood and Erin Brockovich had a working class woman taking on an industrial giant, poisoning people for profit. While Claude Feraldo offered us an anti-hero against pretty much every aspect of modern society, the eponymous mute, priapic and anarchist cannibal Themrock, um, starring uh, the late Michel Piccoli. And when I um, spoke to a, a class of 20-year-old drama students and asked them, uh, they called out the titles Free Willy, Avatar and The Imitation Game. Uh, films which, if you think about it, 
uh, cite concerns around animal welfare, environmental destruction and trans rights. And those films are without mentioning the four uh, fantastic films chosen by my two equally fantastic guests, which encourage them um, to leave the cinema and remake the world. Well, let's find out if it did or it did not. Those guests are architect, former theatre board member, but it still means a lot to him, political campaigner and psychotherapist Anshu Srivastava, plus novelist, director, performer, LGBTQ plus activist and a fellow psychotherapist, Stella Duffy. Welcome both and thank you not only for being here, but for sitting very quietly through my very long introduction. I'm we sure were so polite. You were, because you must have wanted to join in at many stages or to stop me, um, one, <laughs> one, one or the other, or a bit of both. A bit of both. It's over to you now. So that's that's my canter through films that I remember um, from about the age of 14 onwards when I started to immerse myself in cinema. And I noticed that two of the films you've chosen are about adolescence mm -hmm. and they are about uh, adolescent boys. And when I was listing those films, I was remembering my uh, adolescent boyhood. However, uh, this part and the rest of the show isn't about me. It's about the two of you. And Anshu, I will ask you to mention um, the first choice of the two movies that you're bringing to us to talk about. Before you tell us a bit more about the film, I would like you, if you don't mind, to tell us a little bit more about what you were doing and what sort of person you were when you saw this film um, for the first time. Well, when we were asked to think of films that made us want to change the world, it had to be something from when I was 17 years old, because that was very important to me at the time. And so both the films I chose were from, um, from my teens. The first one I saw in 1981. So it was in the first year of my A-levels. I was living in Salford in Manchester. My family had uh, immigrated to Manchester in the late 60s from India. And I was growing up in an um, entirely white environment. Uh, of the 2,000 children that were at my secondary school, I was the only one that wasn't white. And so you can imagine that had quite a profound impact. Uh, I was looking, I suppose, really for something to identify with because I was such an outsider. Mm. And um, the first film, which is Gregory's Girl, made by Bill Forsyth, uh, may seem like a strange choice uh, given um, it's a very small scale uh, and sweet uh, kind of romance about teenage children in Glasgow. But it was a film that I could entirely identify with. It felt like it was the first time I was seeing other children, a school, uh, an environment. Uh, you know, a playground, a street, a park that looked like the ones that I was growing up in. And the fact that it was set in Glasgow in, uh, I think, Cumberland, uh, an entirely white um, neighborhood, working class neighborhood, um, absolutely chimed with my own experience. 
it, it felt like the next day I was going to school was the same type of mm-hmm. corridors and teachers and um, gyms that were part of my life. Uh, so you've you've described the landscape of the the movie uh, as you say, chiming with um, your own within the movie. How Gregory, this sort of awkward, self-conscious teenager who's um, trying but not necessarily achieving in his in his football career and trying, but we don't know whether he's going to achieve in his romantic career. Um, are there resonances between how he relates to the kids around him and where at the stage he is in his life and what's important to him um, that, that relate to you within, you know, within the, those similar, those two contexts that are similar? Well, like him, I was like desperate to try and get my first snog. And I was desperate to see if somebody might invite me to the chip shop for uh, a bag of chips. What was really sweet and I think, you know, really uh, appealed to me was that he and his friends were all, there was, there was, there was no, um, there was nothing malicious in the film. That's what I really liked. And uh, so many other kind of teenage films that we were watching around that time that were coming from across, uh, you know, the pond, uh, like Porky's and, a Kentucky Fried movie and you know always had this kind of mean streak in them mm-hmm. and I really liked Gregory's Girl because it didn't have that and uh, the characters were complex as well because they were looking forward to a life and that really you know, t- you know meant something to me actually and I think mm-hmm. that's why it, it was so important because not only could I see myself in that environment um, you know there was something very hopeful about it Stella, do you remember the film? Yeah, I do. Sorry, Anshu, but um, <laughs> as a teenage girl, I found it sexist. Um, and as a grown woman re-watching it last week, I found it even more sexist. Even though it was made in 1981, even with 1981 sexism, I get it, it's fully male-centred. It's about the male characters. There's there's no genuine perspective from either of the two girls, really. But what I found most depressing was the casual sexism of it. Watching it now, but I'm sh- I, I know I found it shocking at the time that it was getting such a positive reception. And I could see why all the young men loved it. But as a young woman, I mean, in 1981, I was 18, I j- it was like... What is Bill Forsyth doing getting that close-up on Dee Hepburn's bum? I was a, a young feminist. I knew that that was already wrong. And packaged in something that is sweet and nice, I actually think there's something really insidious about the casual sexism in that film. And it disturbs me even more looking at it from now. On the other hand, I think the last 15 minutes is absolutely gorgeous. And I think the whole point of the film is the last 15 minutes. And any British man I know, or any man raised in Britain, because I think there's not necessarily the same thing, but anyway, all the men I know raised in Britain say, oh, Claire Grogan, that's who they're excited about when they think about this film. That's who they remember. And she's only in those last 15 minutes. Mm. And the film, for me, really took off at the point where there's a girl who matters as much as a boy. I mean, you know, I, I don't expect anything other than heteronormativity from, from these films, but, yeah, I'm sorry, I wanted to... I wanted to... Because I remembered finding a bit of it sweet, 
And actually, it was only that last bit that I found sweet. And luckily, I my annoyance of it had disappeared over the years. It just came back last week. Well, I only saw it again last week after many, many years. Mm. And I can't fault you for your... Um, your, your, your description of it, actually. I think it's absolutely spot on. Uh, it surprised me because I hadn't seen it for a long time, mm. how, uh, as you say, casual and, you know, all, you know, in from start to finish, in a sense, it's, um, you know, it has these um, uncritical, straightforward readiness to... Um, you know, to, 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 to take up these sexist positions. So I don't want to say a but, uh, because, <laughs> you know, there are... No, I won't say but, because I think, that, I, think that, I think that stands on its own, but mm. we didn't have a lot of choice back then. I know. You know, so yeah. as I say, you know, for me, it was a, if it was uh, a choice between Porky's, which was mm-hmm. not casual, mm-hmm. it, was, it, it, it was aggressive sexism. Mm-hmm. And this kind of sexism which was less aggressive yeah. that was the choice that i had yeah uh, so within point. that context uh, you know I, I, this this was more um more something that i could actually identify with but uh, nonetheless yes to I, was, I was actually thinking about it when i was watching it last week i was thinking mm. saturday night fever was out in 1978 mm. Right, so it's only three years earlier. And it's not dissimilar in age. You know, yes, they've all left school, but they're not dissimilar in age. And actually, of course, I mean, Saturday Night Fever is, is also, you know, imbued with sexism, but but it's pointed out. You know, we get to see um, John Travolta's character's misogyny. There's the whole stuff around pregnancy and how, how dramatic it is and, and how sexist the attitudes around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with you with all the other American films you're citing, but I do think there were some films in the States that did have an awareness around some of these things. Luke, you'll know. When was The when was the Outsiders? When when was that? That was about 1985. See, I knew you it? would know. I knew you would about know. About 1985. Yeah, which has some... I mean, I, I think John Gordon Sinclair in Gregory's Girl is absolutely delicious. You know, he's, he's everything that you want in an anti-hero who's awkward and uncomfortable... I just think that, unfortunately, he's that in a deeply sexist film that was deeply sexist at the time. Uh, One thing I would say to contrast the two movies you've mentioned is that, because I'm a big fan of Saturday Night Fever, and I saw it when it came out, uh, is that um, Gregory has not yet lost his innocence, but Mm. Tony Monero definitely has. And so I think one has to look at those films as a kind of almost like a before and after um, being introduced to the real world of, of you know, boys and girls and men and women and mm. the straight world. Yes, that's that's um, that that's a given within those within those two films. Nevertheless, Danny Boyle managed to carve out something that still holds up uh, with our more progressive modern values when he um, put on the 2012 London Olympic um, sort of opening show. He used a clip of Dee Hepburn playing football uh, in that. So what he took out was the fact that within that film, it showed that uh, girls could play football as well as boys. In fact, uh, Dee Hepburn's character, Dorothy, is the best footballer in the school. So it's just interesting how uh, when he looked at the source material, he did manage to find something that perhaps stands up to the contemporary um, uh, 
for you, whereas the, the rest of the film is as you've described it. Well, I think another important part of uh, the context was um, going to the comprehensive school and the community I grew up in, uh, we weren't watching films other than the films that were on TV. Um, going to the cinema was few, you know, few and far between. Uh, and so, I mean, it was interesting, you know, um, hearing Luke about your, you know, kind of uh, gallop through uh, all these important films. It was much later that I, I came to those films. So um, there was something that was pointing me towards those films in Gregory's Girl. You know, the, um, you know, the kind of way that the adults were portrayed in this um, rather, uh, they, were, they were more childish and infantile and stupid than, than the children. There were, there, were, there were things within Gregory's Girl that gave me an idea that there was more than the kind of, even the casual sexism, or the racism, the sexism and the classism that I was growing up in. Because even though it didn't kind of skewer those things, and even though it it wasn't angry about those things, it was at least beginning to point them out with working class actors. It was at least beginning to think about a family where, they, uh, for example, it's interesting that the mother doesn't appear in the film. Now, one might see that as being, uh, you know, a kind of further erasure of a, of a female character. One might also see it as being uh, rather, uh, you know, a, 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 a non-normative um, setup uh, because um, the, the mother isn't then also stereotyped mm. um, as a figure uh, within within the family system. Um, the way that it was maybe the first time I'd even come across the idea of food that wasn't English or Indian food. Mm-hmm. With the character of the of of the, of the friend who's making all this like fancy continental food, I had not heard of any of that food. Yeah. So yeah. it was kind of beginning to pique my interest that that was even possible that there was other types of food. Um, you know, the idea, even though it was again very very limited, and can be you know certainly seen today as um, you know problematic, that um, you know the kind of um, the leering from the teachers was actually something that was um, one hand kind of condoned, but at the other, it was actually quite close to an experience that we were actually also dealing with. We were, we were asking questions about our teachers, what was actually going on with it between adults and children, for example. Um, so it was at least touching on subjects that I hadn't really come across before, not in film and not certainly in a film where I could see myself or the people around me in that film. Um, and it was often very funny as well. So, yeah, I think from the perspective of looking at it, um, you know, as we are today, uh, I agree with, with everything that, you know, has been said, but um it was still quite radical for me when I was 17. So we'll, we'll, we'll move on from Gregory's Girl, but we'll stay in the world of adolescence. When you were talking about contrast with American teenagers, I was thinking of all the John Hughes films. Mm-hmm. And uh, much as I really enjoyed them, 
they are sort of unnaturally good looking suburban middle class characters. Oh, come on. Molly Ringwald in Pretty in Pink is intentionally working class. She's American working class. Come on. Yeah, and that is my, that is, and she also has a very interesting relationship with the, um, her single parent, lone parent who was her mm. father, which, which um, does sort of set it out differently. But the, the, the actors, many of whom went on to become the, what were they called? The, um, the Brat Pack yeah. are, are are drawn from a different sort of cast, and I say oh, yeah. that. Yeah, they're lovely, good-looking, nice white middle-class American yeah. kids. Absolutely, yeah. Then the boys and girls in that film. I'm just inter- I'm interested in these sort of transatlantic, um, yeah, sort of contrasts. The Outsiders, on the other hand, is a film that you mentioned earlier, which deliberately looks at people who live either side of the tracks. Uh, but it ha- yeah, and has but it has to do it in a stylized way to get away with it, which is mm. it's also filmed in a retro way and it's in black and white. There's definitely more pimples in Gregory's Girl <laughs> than any of those definitely. other films that you've mentioned. Yeah, you don't get yeah way more pimples than Demi Moore crying yeah. on the floor, yeah. going, "I never yeah. believed I'd be so tired at 21." And those American actors are so buff. I was never buff as a teenager. I'm was sure it? you were, Luke. Sure no, you were. I wasn't. I am now. Oh, boy. Oh, well I buff. wasn't then. Uh, <laughs> the, so I'm going to move on and uh, to another uh, movie that captures the uh, experiences, and it's through, it's through the eyes of uh, an adolescent boy. Stella, you, uh, I hadn't seen this film. I've been meaning to. And as a result of you mentioning it, I've now had the pleasure of seeing it. So thank Very you. Very good. So shall I talk about it? Yes, is this, of course. Is this the point? Okay, so this yeah. is Taika Waititi's boy. And um, to be quite honest, it's not a film that made me want to change the world. What it is, is it's a film set at a time and place where I was all about changing the world and where I believe that the world desperately needed to be changed. So for me, seeing it in 2010 when it came out, it was like, yes, this is the thing. So um, it's set in... Because it's set in 1984, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's set in um, Aotearoa, New Zealand in 1984. It's set in the East Coast, which is uh, even now still a very largely Maori-populated place. And Anshu... My family emigrated somewhere um, in the late 60s from South London Council Estate to a small timber town in the middle of Aotearoa, New Zealand's North Island, um, where I was a I was a white minority, in, albeit a colonised nation, but the people that I grew up with were largely Māori, Samoan, Fijian, Niuean. There were other white immigrants, Scottish, French, German, but my town was 70% Māori and Polynesian. And that has so rarely been shown on film as a kind of standard ordinary, like my experience of growing up white Pākehā, which is Māori for the white person, um, with Māori neighbours was like normal. It wasn't exoticised. They weren't the other because we were all at school together. Um, And I'd never seen anything that did this culture people who I have, you know, grown up alongside in and, you know, working class Aotearoa New Zealand in the same way as I saw in this film. Um, Once for Warriors does, but it's very urban. Uh, whereas um, there's also something just gorgeous about Boy, because, yes, it's about growing up and, and yes, it's about change. But in, in New Zealand at the time, major political changes had happened. In 1981, the um, Springboks uh, journeyed to New Zealand 
during a not worldwide boycott of South Africa by any means, but a pretty intense time. And for the first time in um, Aotearoa New Zealand's history, there was an absolute determination to make voices known that were against um, the racism of South Africa and to use that to also point out the racism of the colonised nation in which we were living. So there was a there was a huge there was a hikoi, which is a march from a um, a colonised piece of land all the way down to Wellington that coincided with stuff that was going on around the Springbok tour. And these three years were when I moved from my tiny timber town where I'm the youngest of seven kids and the first in my family to finish high school, let alone the first in my family to go to university. I moved to go to university and the year I moved to go to university was 1981. So I left this working class small town and went to university where it was all politics. For the next four, three to four years, it was just all politics. And so what I love about Boy is it is set in a time in New Zealand when everything's changing. And so you've got very traditional Māori tanga, Māori culture, which is um, represented by the grandmother who leaves at the beginning of the film. And then you've got um, the father character who's played by Taika Waititi, who comes in and out of this child's life in in terms of fantasy, but also in in reality. And of course, the fantasy dad is nothing like the actual dad. And then you've got these kids who are just kind of living their life with hardly any adults around. They're just kind of getting on with it. And there's, it's kind of precious in its, in not dissimilar to Gregory's Girl, in this hopeful, maybe, where are we, edge of adolescence place. But what I just think is so phenomenal about it is there's, you know, there's one Pakeha character in it, one white person. And it's just like, yeah, we can do films like this, right? This is why I think it's so groundbreaking. So for me, emotionally, it's set at a time that really matters to me and a place that really matters. But politically, in terms of making films like this, this is a film about um, people of colour who have been colonised for mm, coming up for 250 years um, made by one of those people of colour, and it's got one white person in it. I mean, that's a groundbreaking film just in that place. And the white, the white guy's nice. He's just a bit dorky and a bit dumb because he's a teacher. Um, yeah, that's what I, that's that's where I am with that film. It it moved me immensely, and I actually I saw it. Um, it was on. I think it was at the Barbican, and Taika was uh, Waititi was talking about it. And it was just really cool to hear him speak about it and how important it was for him to show that time as well. Uh, Anshu, did you manage to um, catch up with this movie? Oh, well, I saw The Wizard of Oz <laughs> uh, in preparation for uh, today. But um... Which, frankly, is, is another well, film that did change my life and I wanted to have that, but Luke wouldn't let me have it. That's why you saw that. Because... Apparently Pippa Evans already had The Wizard of Oz, but... I have to tell you why The Wizard of Oz changed my life, and I really need you to keep this in because this is gold. People say that The Wizard of Oz is about Dorothy saying, there's no place like home. And they go, oh, that's because home's really lovely. That's because home's really gorgeous. She's not. She's saying there's no place like home because we can never go back. We cannot go back to what home was before we left it. And that actually joins up brilliantly with Boy because that was my home that I left. And, of course, time's passed, so I can't go home to that either. I mean, what is interesting is that, you know, both the films remind us of the home we grew up in. Mm. And also the, the film that 
uh, you chose uh, only has the one white character. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was very important to you mm-hmm. uh, in that film, uh, given the context and the history of um, the country and, um, and, and how the film was made. And the film that I chose uh, didn't have any black characters mm-hmm. in it at all, but I could put myself into that film. Yeah. Um, even though uh, it was um, it, it wasn't obvious to me at the time what I was what, what, what that what that what that allowed for me, but to be allowed to feel uh, that um, there was a space uh, was 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 ironic actually, and 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 I think you know part of the kind of uh, coping strategy as well for dealing with that kind of situation. It's interesting to hear you know, how it liberated something for you. Mm. But see, I think there's something about what you're saying there, actually, mm. that is about how when we are already other mm. or othered by the mainstream, we have to dream ourselves in anyway. Mm. So you had to dream yourself in to Gregory's Girl in mm. whatever ways you could. So mm-hmm. you can you can grab onto the this is what adolescence feels like or mm. this is what working classness feels like or this is what outsideness feels like. Mm. For, from my perspective, it, it's always been looking in from the outside going, can I see some queerness in there that I could dream into? Because I'm always having to dream it into things, even now, obviously. Or for both of us around class, can we see ourselves in that? You know, I mean, similarly, I didn't have loads of movies at, at, um, in my childhood. We have one cinema in Tokoroa and two TV channels and the TV finished at 10 o'clock at night and the movies were on on, on Saturday nights only um, in the building around the back of the library. And, you know, so it, it certainly wasn't tons of Pasolini, that's for sure. But, but dreaming i and hard though it is because i think it's it it takes extra work on our part particularly when we're young to have to dream ourselves in but i also think as adults it's really useful when we've done that because it helps us understand as a writer it's helped me understand telling other people's stories it helps us be able to find our way in to other people's stories in a different way so which i'm i don't recommend necessarily finding oneself on the outside all the time as a child and an adolescent, but I do think it can be useful. One particular aspect of the film that I found interesting uh, was the credit sequence yeah. at the end of the movie in which you have this uh, mashup of a Michael Jackson's thriller because Boy is obsessed with Michael Jackson, as many children of that age were around the globe because he was such a global uh, had such a global reach and and the and the traditional hacker in uh, and the two are kind of fused in uh, what did you think about that um, still I thought it was wonderful I, I, uh, I absolutely loved it not only do I love that but you've also got girls doing the hacker and traditionally uh-huh. it old school girls didn't always depends on on the iwi the tribe but um what was really, what's so cool about it is that it's that bit where you go, and you know what, Luke, when I watched it again, I thought, I'm so glad Luke will be seeing this because he does love a bit of credits, right? And 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 that there's this astonishing extra gift in the credit sequence. And it works, right? It really works brilliantly. And it's not a pastiche of thriller. It uses thriller. It uses elements of thriller. If it does anything, it pastiches bits of the film that we've just watched. 
but it allows the haka to also have its place. And you've got the the um, all the young women and the girl characters uh, doing poi, which is just, yeah, it's really cool. It's a really I, lovely I, element. I mean, apart from it being dramatically and visually um, just really exhilarating, when I thought about it afterwards, I also thought it was a very, very interesting uh, uh, thought piece when we talk about dual heritage and cultural appropriation and so on. Let's stay where we are now, which is with Anshu and the Battle of Algiers. So when I was uh, in my uh, sixth form college in Salford, identifying with Gregory and uh, the rest of the these Glaswegian teenagers in this very white environment uh, with all of its sexism and classism. Inside was raging the Battle of Algiers. Inside I was raging. And um, I didn't have a film to connect with at the time, uh, but I had the feeling. A year later, I came down to London to study architecture and uh, we were given a list of films to go and watch. First time anybody had ever given me a list of films to go and watch, and one of them was Battle of Algiers. And I remember 18 years old going to Scala Cinema in King's Cross, uh, watching this film uh, with some friends. I mean, it's so powerful and raw and and distressing. Um, the violence is... Um, straight on and the the cruelty is straight on and it was how i was feeling inside whilst trying to dream myself into gregory's girl and um it is the story well the, the recreated story of the, the um liberation movement in algeria in the 50s, fighting against French occupation. The French have been there 130 years. Uh, and the um, film was made, I think, in 1966 by uh, the Italian uh, filmmaker Gillo Pontecarovo, although I'm saying this in front of Luke, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure he's going to have to tell me how to say it properly. Interesting that it was made by an Italian because uh, the, the Italians were busy uh, with their own uh, pogroms at the time in other parts of Africa. It was also interesting because whilst the, 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 the Algerians you know, were from North Africa, they looked like me. Uh, and the films that, for example, Luke was mentioning earlier with Sidney Poitier and others, I'd seen those, but, and they were very important to me. And you know, actually, you know, the, the civil rights movement and the films that came out of America in that period were like super important to me. But this is the first time I had seen a political film with people that looked like me. And um, it was really, really uh, kind of a turning point, I think. Uh, and I was angry. I was fripping angry. Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes. I was fucking yes. angry. Fucking angry. I was absolutely raging. Yeah. And that film really, um, you know, it is so direct right from the first 
uh, from the first off, from the off. Uh, there's a there's an execution in the first five minutes, which even though I saw it again this week, I, I watched it again for, for probably the first time in 40 years. Uh, I could barely um, barely watch it. So yes, I know that there's you know much to say about uh, how it was made and the kind of um, style of it and the um, the kind of, uh, you know the technique of it, um, but it was an outpouring of feeling for me. That's what it was. The, the, the reason Pontecorvo made it was he was approached, and, and I don't know why he was chosen. He was approached by one of the FLN officers who'd lived through who'd lived through the conflict. So he, um, I presume he had some pedigree in political cinema or documentary making, because even though it's a feature, it, at times it feel it feels like a documentary. And with the um, almost completely non-professional cast, that was also, I think, one of the um, one of the winning qualities. Um, that contributed to the overall experience. Of course, it got banned in France, inevitably. I, I was thinking, Anshu, uh, revisiting the film, which, of course, is extraordinary, um, that in this country, uh, The Troubles in Ireland, has there's, there isn't a film. There isn't one. I was thinking Michael Collins, The Wind That Shook the Barley, Hidden Agenda. There hasn't been... No filmmaker in the UK has taken on what the f- makers of the Battle of Algiers took on, uh, I think, in in, um, in revisiting a recent period so graphically and so comprehensively, and from and, and from several points of view as well. Yeah, I was I was thinking about yeah. Northern Ireland from like after the the shocking opening i was like oh yes this is that film but i i I too have never seen it about northern ireland i haven't seen the um branner belfast one but i'm guessing it's not um no 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 yes no i i hadn't seen the battle um i (sighs) i'm got i'm i i'm struggling with words for this i found it brutal and amazing and I mean, you're right, Andrew. It it starts with an execution, but the execution is so French. It's a guillotining, mm. and I and I I saw this last week. And I was like, and I had to stop the film and in shock that it was happening and it was still a thing. And I don't know how I didn't know that or how I didn't think that maybe they did, and you know they they thought it was okay. That you know. I'm not saying other countries weren't killing people barbarically as well. Of course they were. But there is something about it being a guillotining that felt particularly horrendous. It's the head head removed. Anyway. But I just thought this was so layered. And actually for something made so relatively close to the event... Mm. You know, you've got this that amazing speech from the colonel saying, um, you know, well, we were the resistance. We're not the bad guys. You know, it's even where it's saying the French colonizers are the bad guys, these French colonizers who are being the army for the bad guys ostensibly, they get to say, yeah, but we were the resistance 10 years ago, 20 years ago. They, they get to put their case, which I think is really rare. In a film like this, normally you'll get one side or the other. And yes, it is absolutely much more from the independent side, which is the voice that needs to be heard. 
But to see the complexity of it, I think, is amazing. And the fact that, you know, yes, guerrilla warfare will kill innocent people. It will kill some teenage kids just dancing in a milk bar. It, it's not always, you know, the good guys kill all the bad guys and only the bad guys. And that was so, I thought, phenomenal. There's... Um, I mean, I knew Camus' writing about it, and I know that there's still, you know, this huge um, discordance still with the people who who are like, well, yeah, Camus Algerian, but he's pied noir. He's he's Algerian who identifies as French. Camus moves to Paris, and he's he's immediately singled out as black, and he doesn't fit. You know, so there's there's that, and and Camus writing about, well, yes, great, let's have a, a revolution, but let's not have a, an Islamic revolution. As an existentialist, he doesn't want a faith-led revolution. He wants a revolution of the people. And that led to a whole bunch of 1960s anger. And what I think is really interesting around this is it sort of touches on it being a faith-led revolution, but it doesn't really go into the the full extent of what that might eventually mean um, in terms of how other Islamic revolutions have and just considering Afghanistan at the moment, right? It's interesting... uh... Watching that again now, you know, since the mm. war on terror and since uh, Edward Said's writing, uh, because um, there's almost a casual uh, moment of passing over the way that the FLN first go to the Casbah, yeah. and in order to uh, actually create some sense of not only power but also fear within the Casbah in terms of their. Um, their, their, their authority, um, that there's this very conservative yeah. uh, uh, approach, which is violence to, uh, in a sense, rid the Casbah of these degenerate, um, or in inverted commas, uh, you know, uh, elements. Uh, yeah, well, the, the, exactly. They, they attack sex workers, they attack people who drink, drink, they attack pimps. And what's so cool about that? is they show that the FLN is complex too. That's why I think it's amazing. It's not just going, these are the good people who are oppressed, these are the bad people who are oppressors. There's there's so much more layered to it. And I don't, I, I don't think, you know, even now when people are trying to make films about colonisation, they're not doing it. You know, that whole piece of North Africa, you, know, you go back to the Roman invasions, when it was when it was Berber territory, that, that land has has constantly been invaded. You know, the, 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 it became Muslim because it was invaded. It, you know, it's been layer upon layer of people invading. And what this is, is some people going, you know what, we're going to name it for ours. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, we are going to rid ourselves of these people who have been our oppressors. And it's it's that barbarism of the oppressed as well. And it, it, it's phenomenal for that. But... The thing about them not being professional actors, they're so good. <laughs> and what's also uh, in- incredible is um, in the complexity, the French uh, paratrooper, the, the colonel, mm, mm. Uh, he says very clearly when he's asked about torture, well, this mm-hmm. is what you get if you want to have occupation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's, um, so there's a very clear-eyed position. Yes. I mean, it's, it's brutal. Uh, uh, but it's not in any sense hypocritical. Yeah, he's not. He's not saying we didn't torture, right? No. He's he's being completely honest, and he's doing that in front of the general, which I think is and and on camera. There's something really 
I think that's possibly why it was banned in France more than (laughs) for any other reason because of that honesty. Yeah, and we won't we won't find a a British movie with a British officer saying that. No, around Ireland, Uh, the guillotine. So yeah, very interesting. The two two of you um, mentioned that image because, of course, in France, it's very much you know it's a signifier of their. Their, mm-hmm. how they see their, their narrative, they, their transition from the ancien regime to this secular, um, enlightenment, democratic. Uh, well, this is a self-image the French, mm-hmm. French have through their, you know, through their revolution, yeah. and uh, it has this ambivalent uh, for me as as a viewer, this ambivalent signification, even you know, even when it's abstracted from actually what's going on around it. Our fourth film of the quartet, Stella. This is uh, Donna Dietsch's Desert Hearts mm. from 1985. And um, so in 1985, I was 22. I'd been coming out slowly both to myself and to people I loved and cared about since I was about, I don't know, 15. Um, and... And I was properly out by then, but I was desperately looking for anything that showed me, me. You know, this goes back to, can we see ourselves on screen? Can we see ourselves on screen? No, not if you're, not if you're a gay woman, not if you're lesbian in the, well, at that time, we had the killing of Sister George. That was it. Mm-hmm. In which women are really horrible to each other lesbians are ghastly and being gay is only going to be sad and awful that was it i mean seriously one of the reasons it was so difficult to come out was because i had no idea what i was coming out into i had no words for it i had no understanding of what it might be but what was so exciting for me about this film was that yes it's set you know in the i think 60s when jane rule wrote the um Desert of the Heart book, but it has a happy ending. (laughs) And I don't mind that that's a spoiler because I want to encourage people to see films in which queer love has a happy ending. And the way it made me want to change the world was to allow that queer love can be happy, that being outside doesn't have to always be only painful. This makes me want to cry even saying it actually. Because so much of queer life is presented as it's so outside we can never have joy. Mm. It's so outside the world will never let us find out each other, be free, be together. And in this deeply groundbreaking film, these two women do. There's the, you know, in inverted commas, uptight, city, educated, extremely middle-class professor who comes to Reno to get her divorce, and um, Helen Shaver, who is beautiful in a cool, blonde, American kind of way, very tippy-hedron, who meets the delicious Patricia Charbonneau, who pretty much, Luke knows my wife, set the um, template for all women I must fancy 
ever. Um, you know, just just gorgeous, delicious, but also funny and a bit gawky and a bit, don't tell Shelley I said that, and a bit, you know, just sort of out of her depth. And there's a class thing going on because there's a working class, less educated woman and a very posh woman. There's a, a where are we from? There's the country meets city. But there's falling in love. It's that it's possible to fall in love and to allow us to show that on screen, to show... Oh, and also to show lesbian sex, like it's not just, ooh, they cuddled and then they came. Mm. Because that is pretty much what lesbian sex, uh, unless it's in porn for um, heteronormative porn, in which case it needs a man who's a plumber, um, that's what lesbian sex had always been shown as. And there it is, there's lesbian sex where they do more than cuddling. So uh, all in all, it's a great film, but it's also got loads of fantastic supporting characters. And it just... it. It made me think it might be possible to make art that I could write, that I could create, that also showed my truths, which I think is pretty big. Mm, mm. Uh, Anshu, um, you saw it recently. I I remember when I first saw it in the cinema, uh, but had you only seen it recently, Anshu? I didn't know about the film. Right until uh, Stella introduced me to it. And I'm so thankful you did. Um, I think it was as radical as Battle of Algiers. <laughs> you know, uh, mm. Because it is so direct, uh, but in an entirely different way. Yeah. Um, it's not trying to um, say anything other than what the characters are mm. living. Mm. Yeah, uh, and it's also very complex. Uh, all the characters, as you say, are given uh, a certain complexity, and nobody's there just to being instrumentalized or used as you know a kind of a, a, a way to make the plot uh, work. Uh, but just coming back to the two leads, um, it's a it's it's a love affair, which is um, you know really has had me um, really turned on. Yeah. It really had me turned on from start to finish. You know, yeah. the, the, the the chemistry between the two mm. is uh, fantastic. And um, there's such um, a struggle for them both. Uh, the, the, the younger character, who's, who's not the English professor, has all the best lines. Yeah, yeah. Um, isn't yeah. it? The, the working class, yeah. not, at, not, you know, not usually the ruler of the world girl, mm -hmm. so has the best lines. She totally. Has the best lines. Yeah. And um, that it's kind of so um, like a first love as well. Mm. Mm, yeah. but, you know, even though they're not uh, by any stretch having their first relationship either of them, there's something very, very uh, poignant about that as well, that they're discovering yeah. something, um, each of them in a different way Absolutely. And, and how excited they are about that uh, and <laughs> yes. frightened as well. Yep. And, and how other people are frightened for them. So the, um, I can't remember her character name, but played by Audra Lindley, kind of like a Barbara Stanek, you know, Western character. She's amazing, the older woman. But her, so, so the thing about her character that I think is so interesting mm. is she loves the Patricia Charbonneau character. Mm. She wants to care for her. She mm. almost has a sexual desire for her that we're led to believe is sort of there, although she's hanging on to her dead husband. Mm. But when Patricia Charbonneau's character loves someone else and the other, other person is another woman, then her, her 
internalized homophobia or her actual homophobia all comes to the fore mm. but it's also to do with her fear mm. you know like you're talking about their fear about their relationship mm. but she's also got a fear she's got a perfectly valid fear for this young woman who she cares for that it is going to ruin her life mm. because that was a perfectly valid thing to think at the time and in many places now well i, I did wonder whether in a sense she recruited that fear to actually deal with her feelings of loss Oh, good point. Um, uh, Because there hadn't really been a sense, or it wasn't actually plausible that she hadn't had a sense of her, um, you know, this this, this other woman who was kind of a daughter to her, but lived in the same house and was clearly having, you know, uh, relationships with other women. But I think she was fine as long as the relationships weren't going anywhere. Once once it mattered, Mm. that's when she felt jealous. That's right. But that was, I think, to do with the loss and then that she, in a sense, recruits this kind of homophobic um, position in order right. to to manage those feelings because she can't simply say, "I'm afraid of losing you." Yeah. Um, uh, but it's available to her as a way of mm-hmm. dealing with mm-hmm. because it's available mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. us in society as a way of dealing with difference mm-hmm. uh, when we're actually trying to deal with more um, more difficult feelings. Um, mm. So yes, it, it it it's it's an important moment as well um, in in the film because up to that point we haven't really seen a kind of the homophobia in yeah. Other, yeah. up to that point, and it doesn't come from where you imagine it to come from. Mm-hmm. You know, given that they're in you know uh, Nevada and it's kind of this in, in inverted commas Hicksville, you might imagine there's some kind of uh, place is going to come. I'm, I'm thinking of. Um, of, of, of that film uh, Boys Don't they, Cry yeah Boys Don't Cry Boys yeah. Don't Cry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and earlier yeah. in a previous episode mm-hmm. we talked about My Beautiful Laundrette where mm-hmm. the yeah. homophobia is very much incarnated the homophobia and racism is incarnated in, in those sort of that's, those skinhead characters are literally mm-hmm. besieging the couple but um, when it comes from the usual suspects it's easier to avoid mm-hmm. as it were oh. um emotionally when it comes from the mother figure uh it's um and this other woman as you say you know um it it it, it packs a punch actually it does and the i mean the obvious candidate is the good looking mm-hmm. young guy yeah who quite fancies you know the the older woman professor yeah. and and he just goes oh mm-hmm. you know <laughs> she won out again mm-hmm. i lost her that's that's the kind of attitude he gives it mm. and he would have been the really cliched and obvious and it's kind of typical mm. and that that's been written many many times mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's a beautiful film it is a beautiful in in in, in both senses of, of the world uh, of, of the world only the world was as beautiful <laughs> as this film it's, it's, but I mean the outer and the inner beauty are, are in the movie. And here's, here's a little interesting coda. Hollywood, particularly in the 80s, was trying to cram mm. more and more sex into its product. Uh, however, this particular film, I think it was a Samuel Goldwyn <laughs> company, they tried to cut most of the sex scene out of it. Yes. Of course they, they did. Of course, of course, of course they, they did. did. Um, whereas elsewhere... Um, they are doing the opposite. I wonder why. Well, that's a rhetorical question. We don't. We don't need <laughs> answers. Um, I would like to mention five easy pieces directed in 1970 by Bob Raffleson and starring Jack Nicholson. 
He is a highly educated eldest son of an affluent family from the serene and green Pacific Northwest, uh, all of whom in his family are virtuoso classical musicians. But we find him at the beginning of the film living in a working class Texas community where the dominant sounds are just industrial clanging uh, on the oil field where he works as a driller. And the only music is Tammy Wynette. The key moment uh, for me when I saw it as a teenager is the scene when he's back in his family home and he turns on a room full of smug and privileged bourgeoisie and shouts, you are all full of shit. And at that time, I was a very radical socialist sixth former, uh, but in a 400-year-old private school uh, where I founded a, a, a kind of a think tank called the Utopian Society. And I took part in the school uniform revolt and I was almost expelled uh, because I wore trainers to my uh, A-level exams. So this Jack Nicholson character, Bobby, who's refusing to live the life society expects of him, uh, was obviously going to resonate with me. But whereas at the time... I interpreted the ending when Bobby kind of leaves everything behind and hitches a ride to Alaska as kind of heroic. Uh, he's giving up his status because he wants to build something new and better. But when I rewatched it recently, I noticed that uh, the character leaves behind his jacket and his wallet. And I now see him as choosing to go into oblivion. Uh, and I also felt bad about the kind of blameless people that he's hurt uh, on the way, particularly his girlfriend, who is brilliantly played uh, by Karen Black. She's a, a diner uh, oh, and the diner waitress in, in a great scene. Um, and he's hurting them because he is sort of chronically alienated. It is still a wonderful film. And I still think it's a defining piece of Americana of that period. And I also uh, credit it as Jack Nicholson's finest screen performance. Um, so I'm going to put that out there. The second film is... Uh, uh, this is my favourite film by an American director this century. And it's called The Florida Project, directed by Sean Baker in 2017. Mm. And it, it's through the eyes of a little girl who lives uh, in a very poor... Um, it's a motel, but people... It's a, like a little a little social housing estate that's privately run. It's a motel. Uh, it's the summer holidays. She's out and about with her friends. Um, the place is called the Magic Castle Motel, uh, but it's peopled by people, uh, by um, residents, poor, insecure, chaotic lives, very much on the margins of the America that America exports to the rest of the world but it's cheek by jowl right next to disney world in orlando and what's beautiful about this film is it reminded me how, and i did this myself how children i didn't i didn't live in those circumstances but through imagination and invention she has adventures she creates almost like a, like a fantasy world within this real world, which is how children survive and prosper and can thrive mm. in these environments. Um, however, by the end of the film, the adult world does encroach and it's police and it's social workers and it's enforcements and it's institutions. The final scene where the adult world has encroached on mm. this little girl's um, fantasy world 
and, and, and bearing in mind we have the reality of the magic castle and then we have the constructed fantasy available only to the affluent of of the magic um the magic kingdom in, in disney world is absolutely breathtaking and um a wonderful piece of cinema and i will leave it there um stella you've You've seen it. You've seen uh, look, I, I, had, I hadn't even heard of it until you told me about it, and I don't know why. It seriously, I don't see anywhere near as many films as you, but I would certainly agree with you. It's one of the best films I've seen this century. The ending—I mean, the kids—the kids are such phenomenally good actors. They're not actors; they're all real. No, the that's what I mean. Well. That's what I mean, they're so—they're so good at being themselves, yeah, and it's so well directed because it lets them just fly. But the. But the, the truth of the story and the poverty of the story and the truth of the poverty cheek by jowl with the absurd and disgusting wealth is so, you know, that, those helicopters coming in and out. But that ending yeah. is everything that I love in an ending that cannot be spoiled. And, and now I, I have <laughs> something to go towards, which is Luke's favourite films of the 20th century. By no, an American, by an American director. By an American the, director. Of, of I mean, how, how amazing is that? And and it, and interestingly, the the I'm going to go and watch it now. Uh, oh, you have to. It's stunning. I love it, and yeah. uh, uh, and. Uh, Interestingly, the, the, the affluent world, because uh, we're not giving too much away, there's hotels that ring Disney World and there's golf courses. You never truly get a, you never get a close up of any of the faces of these people mm. because mm. they're like shadows for, mm. for, for Mooney, the main character. Mm. She never gets up close until the agents of that world arrive at the door, mm. literally. Uh, and But that's all I will say. Well, I, I, I hope those who are listening will will be inspired to, to watch the films or we there's, watch there's the films th- that we've talked about. I know we're finishing, but I'm just going to say there's a thread here oh, and God. there's a thread that goes all the way through these and it is about youthfulness and the encroaching world. So you've got in um, Battle of Algiers, you've got that, that child who's part of, of the team, right, who's, who's used all the way through. And he's amazing. And because he's a child, he's a child adult, he's very much on the edge. He can get in and out in a way that, that the, the older men can't. In Gregory's Girl, you've got this, who am I, where am I? You know, we're, we're watching the nurse from outside at the very beginning and they're trying to make their way into the world and they only make their way into the world when they lie down on the earth, which I really love. In Desert Hearts, Patricia Charbonneau is the youngest character of the older, of the women of the cast and she's the one who's bringing the youthfulness and the joy. Um, in Five Easy Pieces, you've got his, I'm the son and I'm the rebel, but actually he's discarding the adult world that he wants to live in by going off to Alaska. And as you say, Luke, probably losing it because he doesn't want to have to grow up because he's just proved to himself that growing up is shit. And then you've got Boy, in which you've got both the possibility of the world um, exemplified by Taika Waititi's father character who was lying all the way through, but the children still play and the children still have the honesty. And so what we're saying is that revolutions can be made and new things can be created if we would allow the honesty and the openness of youth to infiltrate our agingness. Does that work? I have nothing to add. You've covered it all. I I was just going to mention some more stuff about trains, but I I won't bother because uh, I will now say, Stella, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Also, 
um, for sharing with us movies that made you want to change the world. Uh, until our next episode, uh, from myself, your host, Luke Sorber, and my producer, Andrew Payne, I will say goodbye. And this was a Picard production. <laughs>